You ever heard of the phrase, uh, the devil's in the details? You guys heard of that phrase before? Well, what does that phrase mean? That phrase means that, uh, that the devil's in the details. Some of the, the hardest parts of what we do is usually with respect to the details, isn't it? Some of the hardest, the most difficult part is often found in the many, many small details. And when we overlook the small things, it can often come back to bite us in the end. And so the phrase, the devil's in the details, is often meant to encourage folks to pay close attention, close attention to, to details so that nothing gets overlooked. You know, this phrase is especially true for a number of professions. I think of scientists, I think of engineers, or mathematicians, or architects. These kinds of professions, it's all about the details. One angle off, or one degree off, or one centimeter off, and it can throw the whole thing out of whack. Details for those kinds of professions is critically important. Is that right, Glenn? All right. But you know, paying strict attention to detail is not always what's best. It's not always what's best for every profession, that is. Take baseball, for instance. How many of you played baseball or softball? Raise your hand. Okay, we got a few baseball and softball players. What do they tell you about hitting? Hitting is what? 90% mental. Exactly, Doug. Hitting a baseball is 90% mental and only 10% physical. That is to say, when you are up at the plate, if you're concentrating on the mechanics, the details, the physiology of the swing itself, you're going to miss the ball. But if you have the right mental perspective, if you have the right mental consideration as that pitch is coming, if your mind is in the game, you're much more likely to succeed at hitting the baseball. They say in baseball that hitting is 90% mental and 10% physical. Or as Yogi Berra says, 90% of hitting is half mental. That's a yogiism there. In our study of Mark today, Jesus is going to be addressing the topic of details. Details. And he's going to tell us to be like the baseball player and not the scientist. He's going to tell us to be like the baseball player and not the engineer, not the mathematician, not the architect. Sorry, Glenn. He's going to tell us to be like the baseball player and not get lost in the details. From Jesus' perspective, Details often keep us from what is truly important. The title of my message today is The Devil Wants Us in the Details. The Devil Wants Us in the Details. And we're going to see today just how details can keep us from living the Christian life as God intended it to be lived. Let's turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And we're going to begin with just a brief review of last week's 
text. We're going to look at a few verses from it, and then we're going to move on to our main text today. Mark chapter 7, we're going to look at a few selections from verses 1 to 13. In particular, verses 1, 2, 5, and 9. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Mark says this, Then the Pharisees and the... Excuse me. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Verse five. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Verse 9, and Jesus said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Now, let's pause there a moment. We've just read a brief selection from last week, and I wanted to make three comments about last week. that are going to help us understand what this week's section is all about, because really this week's text is a continuation of that same story. And so we need to know what happened in the verses prior to our main text today, I want to make three brief observations. First, in review of Mark 1, 7, 1 to 13, the Pharisees and scribes had a tradition, a tradition of applying the Mosaic priestly code to the common Jewish worshiper. Now, what I mean by that, in chapter 7, verse 5, you'll notice Excuse me, in chapter 7, verse 2, you'll notice they look at the disciples eating bread with unwashed hands and they find what? Fault. The reason they find fault is because in the mind of the Pharisee and the scribe, the common Jewish worshiper, a commoner, was not only required to follow the laws of common Jewish worshipers, but was also required to pay heed to the laws that applied to to priests. They took what was a priestly code and they said, let's insert this on top of even the common Jewish worshiper. And so what the disciples were doing was not transgressing the law, but in the Pharisees' mind it was because they liked to apply extra litigation, if you will, extra legal niceties upon the common Jewish worshiper. And that's what they did. And so they come to Jesus and they say, hey, why are they why are they doing this unclean? Number two, thus, when the disciples transgressed the priestly code by eating with unwashed hands, the Pharisees and scribes declared them unclean. Now, what this meant was that they could not worship. That they were unfit for Jewish worship and certainly for being religious leaders, which they were at that time Becoming. And so the Pharisees and scribes are trying to undermine their authority and say, no, no, no. How, how can they be leaders, let alone worshipers, when they are not obeying the law as we see it? They're unclean. Number three. But Jesus, Jesus rejects their tradition. And that tradition was applying the priestly code to the common worshiper. He rejects that tradition and he tells them, as you adhere to your tradition, you are rejecting God's commandments. As you are adhering to your tradition, you are rejecting God's commandments. 
Now realize, folks, that this statement by Jesus to the Pharisees and to the scribes, it was a very serious allegation. I mean, we, we, we need to really pause here and jump into the first century mind and realize this. The most pious, the most righteous, the most holy people in all of Israel, according to the common Jew, was who? The Pharisees. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the scribes, their, their legal counterparts, He is saying to them, You are rejecting God's commandments. He's telling the most pious group in Israel that they are defying God's law. No small allegation. No small allegation. Now we pick up our story, our main text, in verse 14. We're going to take this in two sections. First, verses 14 to 19. It says this, When he, Jesus, had called all the multitude to himself, this is after his interaction with the Pharisees, he calls the multitudes to himself and he says to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And so Jesus said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, oh, we'll stop right there. Thus purifying all foods. Now, notice verse 14 and verse 16 in this text. Jesus says, hear me. And then in verse 16, he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, these are bookends. These are, these are the, in, the beginning and ending of a significant statement that comes in the middle. This is the beginning and ending of a, of a significant, significant statement that comes in the middle. And what is that statement? We find it in verse 15 and we find it repeated in verse 18. In verse 15, he says, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. And again, in verse 18, whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him. Let me summarize in a brief phrase what verse 15 and verse 18, what Jesus is saying there. He's saying this, nothing you eat makes you unclean. He's saying nothing you eat makes you unclean. Now, we look at that statement. Uh, with we hear that statement with 21st century Western ears, right? And we look at that statement and we think, okay, what's the big deal? But to the first century Jewish ears, those who heard Jesus say verses 15 and, and repeat it again in verse 18, 
I assure you, they couldn't believe what they heard. Not long before verse 15, Jesus had already made a startling statement. We just talked about it moments ago. He made the statement that the most pious religious leaders in all of Israel were defying God's commandments. That got everyone's attention. But that statement, as startling as it was, paled in comparison to what we now read in verse 15 and what we see repeated in verse 18. Nothing you eat makes you unclean. Why is this so startling? Folks, in one sentence, in verse 15, and again in verse 18, Jesus is effectively negating a large portion of the Jewish law. In one full swoop, with one phrase out of His mouth, Jesus is negating a large portion of the Jewish law. He's doing precisely what He said the Pharisees were doing. He was, remember, He was calling on the Pharisees and saying, you're rejecting, you're defying God's commands, and He was ridiculing them for that. Now, He's seemingly doing the same thing. Now, what is this law that He's negating? Well, folks, a fair portion of the Mosaic law is dedicated to food. A fair portion of the Mosaic law is dedicated to laws about what food is clean and what food is unclean. Uh, we see it in Leviticus chapter 11. We're not going to turn there today. Um, it's, it's just too much to cover, quite frankly. But if you wanted to do a study, Leviticus 11 is a fascinating chapter about what foods were considered clean, that is, okay to be uh, partaken of by, by the Jewish worshiper and they would still be fit to worship, and what food is unclean or what is forbidden to be eaten if you want to be uh, a Jewish worshiper in good standing with God. And again, in chapter 17, we, we see a lot of mention of, of, the, of the prohibition against drinking blood. So we can add chapter 17 to this. Why, though? The big question is, why did God tell Moses... Why did He give Moses and, and the Jews all of these food laws? This is why. Leviticus chapter 20. He says, You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean, and you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground which I have separated from you as unclean. Notice verse 26. And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Verse 26 is significant here, folks. The food laws of Leviticus 11 were given to the Israelites so that they might be set apart and holy before God. The pagan nations in the surrounding regions of Canaan in the promised land where they were headed, these pagan nations had many, many pagan practices and rituals that involved different kinds of animals and different kinds of, of, uh, of modes of practices such as the drinking of blood or the sacrifice of swine, pigs. 
And God's telling Israel as they enter the land, as they're preparing to enter, I want you to be different than them. I want you to be distinct from the nations that you're going to encounter who are evil. And I don't want you to eat the kinds of food that they themselves pervert. Folks, the food laws was nothing more than a way of disassociating the Israelites from their sinful neighbors. God gave them a strict diet as they prepared to enter the promised land. And this diet was given so that they would be different than the rest of the nations in the land of Canaan. The food laws were given that they could be holy and pure, set apart for their God. Now back to our text. We see in verses 15 and verse 18 that in one brief statement, Jesus wipes out 1,500 years of Jewish food laws. Nothing you eat makes you unclean. And so I ask the question, is Jesus really negating the Old Testament law? Is Jesus really negating the Old Testament law? Is He really contradicting the 1,500-year-old Mosaic food laws that God gave to Moses Himself? Well, the answer to this question really depends on who you are. The scribes and the Pharisees, they had a certain kind of answer. The scribes and Pharisees would have answered this question most definitely in the affirmative. They would have said, yes, he's negating the law. He's defying the law. Their eyes were on the details of the law. Their eyes were on the details of the law. If God told Moses... In Leviticus 11, that some animals are clean and others are unclean, then by golly, these food laws should remain in effect forever. God said it, we abide by it. Follow every letter of the law, they say. Don't stray from one detail. That's one way of answering the question. But another way of answering the question comes from the eyes of Jesus Christ. How would Jesus have answered this question? Folks, Jesus viewed the law differently than the average Jew or the Pharisee viewed the law. We have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back at the New Testament and we can see how Jesus understood the nature of the Mosaic Law. You know how He viewed it? He viewed the law like we view training wheels. He viewed the law like we view training wheels. When, uh, when I was a kid, you know, we'd, I would get on my bike with training wheels and I would start riding. And I would still fall sometimes, even with the training wheels on, because I didn't have much balance. And the training wheels were there almost like a tutor and a guide to help me learn what I needed to know in the end, and that was how to balance myself on the bike, how to ride on my own without the training wheels. And so the training wheels served as a tutor and a guide, a help to me, guiding me toward the end objective, which was to become sufficient in riding my own bike. 
Now, when I came to that point in my life where I learned how to ride a bike without training wheels, did I leave the training wheels on? The answer is no. I naturally took those training wheels off. Why? Because they had served their purpose. The training wheels had served their purpose. And now I was able to accomplish what I had been seeking all along. My objective was to ride my bike uninhibited. And the training wheels helped me do that. And when they did, they no longer were needed. Folks, Jesus Christ viewed the Old Testament law as a tutor, as a guide, as training wheels, leading God's people toward a final objective, a final destiny. That destiny would come under the rulership of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That destiny, that objective would come when God's Spirit would be placed within each one who trusted in the Messiah for salvation. This is how Jesus viewed the law. Paul talks about it in Galatians 3. He says, therefore, Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor, our tutor, to bring us to Christ, that we might, of the end goal here, be justified by faith. But after faith has come, when the objective has come, we are no longer under a tutor, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is so well said by Paul. This is so well said in understanding the nature of the law with respect to the Christian. Folks, for Jesus, the law is a means to an end. I say again, for Jesus, the law is a means to an end. And that end is Jesus Christ. That end is God's Spirit within the believer upon faith in Jesus Christ. And so the details of the law were only meant, the details of the law were only meant to point the Jewish worshiper toward the final destiny, toward their Redeemer. And insofar as Israel kept their eyes on God and not the details of the law, they were fulfilling the law. But insofar as they kept their eyes on the details of the law and missing the objective of the law, they were missing the purpose for which the law was given. Insofar as the Jewish worshiper kept their eyes on the Messiah, the coming Redeemer, the end of the law, they were fulfilling the law. But insofar as the Jews were idolizing the details and the stipulations of the law, they were missing the point for which the law was given. And hence, the title of my message, The Devil Wants Us in the Details. He wants us looking at the stipulations of law. He wants us looking and idolizing and worshiping Law, not the lawgiver. If they concentrate on the legalities, well, then they'll miss the point of the law, Satan reasons. If they concentrate on the legal niceties, well, then they'll miss the lawgiver.
The devil wants us burdened by legalities and stipulations so that we miss the big picture. One of the best ways I can illustrate this is, have you ever, have you ever planned a party? Okay. How many of you have planned a party before? Raise your hand. All right. Many party planners. How many of you, as you plan your party, whether it's a birthday party or just a 4th of July party or whatever it is, you get so lost in the details, so lost in the food and the decorations and, the, and the, does everybody know how to get here? And is the house clean? And is everything just right? Is everything just proper so that everybody can enjoy themselves and you yourself forget to celebrate at your own party? How many of you that's happened before? Okay, a few of you. I know for Casey and I, that happens, uh, you know, that happened at our, our son's first birthday party. We were so caught up in putting on this great party. We wanted a baseball theme and we had all the Cracker Jacks and the, and the cotton candy. And we were trying to get it just so that halfway through the party, I had to remind my wife. I said, honey, we got to enjoy ourselves here. This is our son's first birthday party. Who cares about the details? Who cares about all the little, you know, whether or not there's enough peanuts for everybody? Let's enjoy the party. Let's see the big picture here. Our son is one year old. Folks, we can easily get lost in details. We can easily get lost in those kinds of things and miss, miss the whole point of what those details are working toward. And so let's return to our question. Is Jesus really negating the Old Testament law? Is Jesus really contradicting 1,500-year-old established food laws that God gave to Moses? I say this, folks, and I'm going to say it in three statements. I think this is important. When the details of the food laws become idolized, worshipped, and the intent of the food laws were ignored, the food laws themselves became useless. When the Pharisees and scribes idolized the stipulations of the law, which they did, when they worshipped stipulations, they're eating with unwashed hands, unclean. They worshipped legalities. They missed intent. And the law itself became useless to them. It was not fulfilling its purpose. Secondly, Jesus came to fulfill, complete, I might say, the law, including the food laws that were intended to keep Israel holy. Thus, as Jesus verbally negated the details of the food laws, he was simultaneously fulfilling them in his person. And what do I mean by this? This is kind of an uh, interesting way of stating this, but I'm saying that Jesus... He is verbally negating the Old Testament food laws. Make no mistake about it. You read Acts 15, and what do the the disciples say in response to the Gentiles' requests about food laws? They say, hey, you can eat whatever you want to eat. And you know why they said that in Acts 15? Because of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, what we're reading right here. Jesus is negating the food laws. Make no mistake about it. But he's not negating the law in and of itself. Instead, he's saying those laws the purpose for which they, they were given, the reason God gave them, are now null and void. They're missing the point. God gave them so that they'd be holy. 
God gave them so that they'd be pure. God gave them so that they'd be separated from the other nations. And it's not working. Instead, they're taking those food laws and they're perverting them and they're manipulating them and they're twisting them to their own tradition. The laws have become useless. And so I've come, Jesus says. I've come. And now I'm coming and I'm going to show you the intent of the law. I'm going to demonstrate in my own person by what I do for you what the intent of the law is. And that is to point people back to Christ, to Almighty God. How does Jesus do this? Our last statement. Personal holiness now would no longer be a matter of what one ate, but would now be measured exclusively in terms of receiving the righteousness of Christ by faith in him. I don't have it listed up there, the text that is, but Romans 3.21, listen to this. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Jesus is saying the holiness that you're seeking. Clearly, it's not going to happen by these food laws. You've ruined them. You've ruined God's law. And so I'm negating them, not because I'm defying God. Those laws were given for very good reason. But you've ruined them. You've spoiled them. And so now I'm going to negate that and show you even more vividly what holiness looks like. And thus Christ came, died, paid the price for sin and death, that by faith in Him we could know what righteousness was. We could know what holiness was. We could know what being separate and pure truly looked like. Verse 17 to 19. And when He had entered a house away from the crowd, His disciples asked Him concerning the parable, And so he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Notice the disciples didn't fully understand what Jesus was saying. They're confused. Jesus says, are you without understanding also? But Jesus bears with them and he explains his teaching a little bit further. Pick it up in the middle of verse 18. He says, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Verse 19, because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. The Jews believed that strict adherence. And the disciples believed that strict adherence to the food laws would make them holy before God. And they came to idolize these laws. They came to idolize these details. And in verse 19, Jesus is saying very clearly, Hey, since you're missing the point of the Mosaic food laws, I've got a new concept for you. Food is now simply food. 
It's the stuff that goes into your stomach, gets digested and exits the body. No longer will anyone be able to claim holiness by means of a kosher diet. Food is now simply food. You missed the point of the laws. And so now I tell you very clearly, the food is clean. And thus we see the statement, thus purifying all foods. Now, if you have a different translation than the New King James, it might read something like, Thus Jesus declared all foods clean, or thus he declared all foods clean. This is a, a very minor point of disagreement among scholars. Um, some believe that the end of verse 19 were spoken by Jesus. Others believe that they were an editorial comment by Mark. In my opinion, uh, either way you, you take it, Jesus is still suggesting, and the disciples are still hearing very clearly, as evidenced by what they did in Acts 15, that Jesus is declaring all foods are clean. So in the end, I'm not really concerned about what your Bibles read there. The same point is made. Jesus has declared all foods clean because they miss the point of the food laws. And boy, am I glad because I love bacon. I do. And if we were under that, if we were still under that diet, I would just I'd be sinning every day. It would be awful. Folks, Jesus' digression, his diatribe on the Old Testament food laws, it's not finished yet. We've got one last section to look at. He spent considerable time rebuking the religious leaders for missing the point of the food laws. By now it's clear that even eating pigs does not make one unclean. And now in verse 20 to 23, Jesus is going to draw everyone's attention to what truly makes a person unclean. Notice what he says. And Jesus said, verse 20, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed, go out, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, Lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and go out and defile a man. Nothing you eat makes you unclean, Jesus says, but the sins of the heart that exist within you, these are the things that make a person unclean. And I think we can make the case that the Pharisees were exhibiting some of these very sins listed by Jesus Christ in their attempt to follow the food laws. Evil thoughts, that is to say evil reasoning, or contemplating doing evil. Adulteries, in the plural. Physical adultery, adulteries of the mind. Fornications, physical sexual immorality, murders, killing, thefts, stealing, covetousness, desiring the things of others, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, indecency, licentiousness, an evil eye. This is a unique one. 
Other scholars speculate that actually this had a lot to do with sorcery. If you look at some of the apocryphal texts back in that day, the evil eye was often mentioned in some of the apocryphal books as indicative of what a sorcerer would do upon another person. As they gave an evil eye, they were casting a sort of spell, if you will, on the one who was receiving that evil eye. Blasphemy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus is saying, let's be real here. Sinners aren't sinners because of what they eat and drink. Sinners are sinners because of the wicked wicked thoughts in their hearts and the evil actions that come out from those thoughts. All these evil things, Jesus says in verse 23, all these things I've listed come from within. And those are the things that defile a man. Start thinking about food laws. Start thinking about the details of the law, stipulations of the law. And all of a sudden you miss what really defiles. Uh, in a, a church, many churches are killed. They're, they're, they're destroyed. They're gutted because of legalism. I think that's fair to say. Many churches, the Spirit of God is, is squelched in churches where legalism abounds. And what happens when a person is legalistic is that they're looking at the niceties of the law. They're looking at the minutiae of law. And they're applying it on everyone. And what comes out is an attitude of judgmentalism, um, of rigid behavior. There's a lack of humility. There's a... There's an increase in pride of people who, who act that way. Um, I'm sure you've, you've, you've felt that in one way or another in some experience you've had. A, a place where legalism abounds is not a good place to be. People walk around in constant judgment of one another. And all the while, all the while, they're missing this l- list of great sins, many of which they're committing, which are so much weightier. And so much more, the, the greater problem of their heart. You know, this is a long list. It's a scary list. There's things on this list that, that look pretty awful. And yet some of the most awful things I know, I've dealt with in my life. And I just want to pose the question as we conclude today. How do we, as we, as we get off law, as we get off details, as we, as we leave the focus on details of the law, How do we now, knowing that we're defiled by these things that come out of our hearts, how do we now free ourselves from this? How do we get rid of these things? How do we free ourselves from sin and become holy? I want to focus on this question as we conclude today. How do do I free myself from sin and become holy? You know what the answer is? It is certainly not to follow law. Follow law and you will continue in that pattern. We've seen this. So there must be another answer. Anytime I'm, I'm, I'm counseling someone in sin, which, um, which it really in this church doesn't happen often because I think that the people of Coast, I think, by and large, 
we recognize the best way to handle sin. And so what I'm going to tell you right now is not innovative. It's not creative. It's not going to wind up on a bestseller list. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be something that's going to blow your mind. It's going to be basic. It's going to be simple. It's going to be fundamental. And many of you are going to say, well, I already know that. Good. Keep knowing this. This is how you deal with sin. I say this. First, you fix your eyes on the person of Jesus Christ and consider God's great mercy toward you. You say, well, what do you mean? You think about Jesus? Yes. Think about Christ. Think about, meditate on, contemplate, put Jesus Christ before you in every moment of your day if you are struggling with sin. So why do I say that? Paul in Romans 12.1 is answering the question, how do I become holy? How do, I, how do I have a holy life? How do I have a life that's pleasing to God? How do I become Christ-like? I want to be closer to God and I don't want to sin anymore. I'm stuck in this addiction. I'm stuck in this rut. And I don't know how to get out of it, God. How do I get out of it? How do I become a holy person? This is what Paul says. He says this, I beseech you, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You know what Paul says there? He's making an unbelievable statement here. We always miss it because it's a very common verse. And we're like, I've heard that verse before. Don't miss this. Paul is saying the way, the way to holy living, the way to being a sacrifice for God, the way to being acceptable before God is looking at the mercies of God that are most exhibited by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says you want to be holy? Do it in view of the mercy of God. And you will be holy. Don't look at your sin. Don't think, I, I don't know how to get out of the sin. I don't know how to get out of the sin. Don't concentrate on the sin. Concentrate on Christ and the sin will dissipate. Concentrate on Christ and the sin will dissipate. And secondly, read the Word of God. 1 Peter 2, 1-2 says this. Look what Peter says, how to get rid of sin. He says, therefore, if you want to lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, then as babies desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. Folks, these, aren't, these are not complex answers. And I know there are books out there that give you 35 chapters on how to deal with sin. And it's funny how so often they miss these two things, which I say are fundamental to the Word of God. These two elements are fundamental to dealing with sin in your life. I know when I'm stuck in sin, you know why I'm stuck in sin? It's because my eyes are off Christ. That's why. When I'm in sin... I look back over my week and I realize I wasn't considering at all the person of Jesus Christ. And thus, I was in sin. I wasn't at all reading the Word of God, letting the Spirit of God use the Word of God to change me. And so I was in sin. So I regressed to my former state. 
Don't get lost in the details. Being holy and pure before God is about keeping our eyes focused on Jesus Christ and his word and fending off the tendency to look at law. The devil wants us in the details. He wants our nose in the law. And when it is, he knows he's winning the battle. But we need to rise above his tricks. We need to keep our eyes on Christ. And we need to eat and drink the word of God that the spirit of God may use the word of God to change us. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I know um, that it's a, it's a tendency of all of us, myself included, to look at legalities and stipulations and details. Father, it's our tendency in life to look at law and to assume that obeying law and stipulations is what makes us holy before you. Father, may you rid us of that tendency. Father, we saw today how these, the food laws that you, you gave over 3,500 years ago were totally, totally perverted and misunderstood. And, they, and the people missed the intent of them. And so you negated that law and you said, let me show you a better way. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to show us what holiness looks like, to show us what, what perfect righteousness looks like. And Father, we know we can have that by faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that if anyone here does not have everlasting life, righteousness that Christ offers by faith in Him, Father, that they today would believe in Your Son and realize that life. And Father, for the rest of us, I pray again that You would keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, on Your Word. These are the things that nourish us. These are the things that give us life. These are the things that help us to grow. It's not about concentrating on our sin and on ourselves. It's about losing ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ as we worship, adore, contemplate Him, read His Word. Father, I pray that, uh, that You would help us to focus on Your Son, to read Your Word, and to grow thereby. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.